KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. The last time I guest New Yorker writer Huashu was here, he was here to talk about his book, A Floating Chinaman, which took him 10 years to write. His most recent book, State Through a Memoir, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, took him over 20. Boy, you don't like to work, do you? <laughs> wow, I, I'd forgotten about that, that the first one had taken me so long. But um, yeah, it's great to be here. I'll, I'll see you again in 40 years, I guess. <laughs> Me or the AI uh, that has replaced me. This copy I'm holding in front of me, I've had it for about a year now, and <laughs> it's got so many underlined and passages and dog-eared pages that it looks like a freshman's version of uh, an American tragedy. There's so much <laughs> about you that sort of caught me off guard in the book. And one of the things was early on when you mentioned that my father's record collection only had the effect of making music seem uncool to me. It was something that grown-ups took seriously. I was rendered speechless when I read that passage. Yeah, I guess, you know, when I was a teenager, probably not that different from a lot of folks. I was just trying to define myself in opposition to everyone, including my own parents. And for whatever reason, I just didn't think there any cachet attached to my parents being like super into music. And so, uh, I mean, what did I know? I was listening to a lot of like AM talk shows at the time. So that was what I thought was cool. It's so interesting because just thinking about these two books, there's kind of this, this that built on this loneliness that kind of uh, really is the line that runs through the both of them. I mean, you can't see me, but my jaw just dropped. I hadn't really thought about the two projects as having really sharing anything in common other than just my own sense of interest in sort of how we learn to imagine things. But you're absolutely right. There is a, a degree to which um, there's a sense of kind of searching solitude, search for community in both, but not really community in a kind of generic political sense, but just, you know, fellow travelers. Sure. There's that line in the book, I was the American child and I was bored and I was searching for my people. <laughs> that line could have been in the floating China then. Yeah. I mean, that book was about a, uh, you know, like this kind of quirky, oddball, proletarian uh, writer. And, you know, I, I think I was drawn to H.C. Zong because he was always self-publishing things and kind of forcing his people he ran into to, to buy his books and to read his self-published books. Uh, there's definitely something about sort of that search for a tribe, understanding your roots and your history, but also wanting to strike out on your own and discover something new that, you know, now that you, you mentioned, it really does tie the two books together. I was just struck by that because I, I just thought about how so often that he was, and it happens a lot in, in State True as well, people being defined by their proximity to objects and what holding that object says about you. I love hearing people's stories about their relationship to objects or, you know, stories of collecting. But um, as a collector myself, it's something that I think it's sort of this talismanic power I see in objects. And, and I think that was something that struck me with the first book when I was, you know, holding these old papers that H.C. Zong had, had, had held in his hand or written or just used copies of his books. 
it wasn't dissimilar to holding objects that um, my father's records or or things that my friend Ken had owned that 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 end up in Stay True. I don't know if it's just the nature of being just really into culture, really into things, the history of culture that I, I tend to fetishize these things. But um, yeah, it, there's a sort of history that you feel when you're holding these objects. Yeah, and there's something kind of totemic about it. I mean, you talk about just the brand of rice cooker and what that says about you, or Dynatone speakers, a brand I thought I'd never hear mentioned again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and what that says about the RCA Record Club and what things are, especially as, as Americans, we do as often as not take our measure by these things that are nearby. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was, I'm, I'm actually teaching a class. I teach at Bard College. I'm teaching a class on things, uh, partly because I'm just trying to understand some of these questions that you're asking, um, you know, and sort of have the insight of, of younger people. And, you know, one of the reasons I think people keep things around is because you have this vision of like future use, like these things not only root us in the past, but there's also this idea of future potential, you know, like, I'm going to go back and write about this record. I'm going to go back and and wear this shirt again someday. And uh, yeah, there's this sort of weird way in which it's an avoidance of the present as well, because you know, you're know you so stuck thinking about how these things trigger these associations with the past. You're also thinking about who you might become in the future when these things become a natural part of you. And, and I think especially Stay True was sort of this question of like, how do you, how do you be present in those moments too? And whether that's desirable. Yeah, but as you were talking, though, I was thinking about you mentioned Aristotle on friendship and how friendship is that sort of looking towards the future, but also that sort of contrast of being guided by emotion and pursuing what you find pleasant and what those moments bring. I, I'm not at all a, an expert in Aristotle or Derrida or a lot of the people who, who I quote on friendship, but you know, I was really struck by what Aristotle said, which is you know, just that when you're young, you're kind of guided by your own emotions, by the intensity of those emotions. And it really felt true. I mean, I think when you're a certain age, you, you feel only obligated to a future, maybe not the future, but you're sort of looking past what you have. And, and I think it's just one of the joys of being young is, is that you're sort of contractually obliged to not take your parents too seriously, not take your friends too seriously, and just sort of look towards some horizon that you you hope is there. And so a lot of the book is about kind of recalling that in my own life, but also wondering what happens once your sense of that future horizon is uh, altered or diminished. It's the treatment. My guess, who certainly knows something about compulsive proletarian writers, is Washu. His, <laughs> his, his Pulitzer Prize-winning memoir is Stay True. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. It's interesting to me because I think like a floating Chinaman, the book seems to be about one thing in the first half and becomes something else in the second half. It's funny. I, I really had never thought about these books in common, but you're so right. There's a way in which Stay True, you know, a lot of people have told me that it begins as something that seems a little ready-made or almost generic, like the story of uh, of the child of immigrants trying to find his way. Um, and then it sort of morphs into a book about, you know, friendship in the 90s and, and grief. The structure of the book kind of necessitated that because, not to spoil anything, but as the book evolves... Um, sort of the the draw of that past and sort of how we learn how to feel 
how we learn to imagine things, um, sort of to what degree we sort of inherit these uh, emotional terrains of our family. A lot of that becomes more important, so such that you know at first it just seems like a sort of tale as old as time of like uh, you know the the Taiwanese graduate students who end up in the United States, but then over time, uh, sort of the sense of why you're being told these details, um, I hope matters a bit more. I, I don't mean to, to, to sound gloom about this, but I just found that there'd be so many connections because I know you. It's the evolution from seeing, being able to see only what's right in front of you to this sort of expansiveness of maturity and being able to take in the whole world. And that's what, to me, sort of separates the, the halves of these. Actually, I should say the last third, because it's really the last third of, of Stay True, where it takes a, a big shift in both tone and emotional resonance. But it's, it's the first half of Floating Chinaman. And I thought it was interesting because it's, it's about vision becoming bigger and recognizing that there's a world around you. And, and, and part of that's just sort of sort of getting out of your own head a little bit, isn't it? I mean, for, for Stay True, a lot of it was about finding the language to actually articulate what it is you just expressed. I, I was looking for a bigger world, but I didn't know that that's what it was called. I thought it was just sort of adventure, you know, or, or excess, or just sort of the things that when you're young, you're, you're casting about for things, you just don't know what to call them. And a lot of the book is about trying to find the language to, I guess, just describe what it is I was searching for um, in, in sort of the absence of, of my friend. I think so much of it too is just about even being able to recognize that the world is something bigger than your grasp. I think about the section you wrote about Nevermind and how this belonged to you. You were an early adopter even. And and I just remember a conversation we had back at, at, in Cambridge when I, I don't know if you remember this, I told you, well, come on, it's just Dave Grohl doing uh, the Gap Band count. He's playing, yeah. he's opening that song <laughs> with, with, with Party Train. Having this really long conversation about that then and reading Stay True just really getting a chance to reckon with the impact that had on you. And it's also, in its way, it becomes a kind of this mirror of the book. Because this thing that you thought was just yours, you recognize that other people wanted it and it was a part of their lives. And then you got this, well, it means something to them too. And this, to me, that section is really this kind of reduction of what a lot of the book is. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you bring up these conversations about, um, you know, Dave Grohl, basically channeling the Gap Band. You know, when, in 1991, when I was 13, I had no idea. It would be years before I understood who the Gap Band was. I, I don't even know if I'd heard the Pixies by then. And so all <laughs> of the things that they were, you know, interpreting for themselves were things that were just beyond my comprehension. So it was sort of like I had a portal into this larger world. I knew there was a larger world. I just didn't know how to get there. And you know, as the years pass, you get older, you, you sort of, your, your sense of taste coheres a bit more. You kind of forget that you once had no idea that the stuff you deeply passionately loved was like completely derivative of something else, you know, or that it was inspired by something that you, you did not understand in that moment. And so I think part of that section that you're talking about with Nevermind and Nirvana, it is sort of me trying to remember what it was like to think that I was discovering something, but in reality, I was discovering something totally different, you know? I mean, maybe I was an early adopter, but, you know, like 200 million people bought <laughs> that second Nirvana <laughs> record. So 
what what's funny about it now is just looking back at so much of the book and thinking like, oh, no one will ever understand this or no one will ever relate to this because it's so singularly me. And then sort of stepping back and realizing, no, like 200 million other people had this experience just because I had it a week earlier. You know, that might be something that I think defines me. But what matters is sort of what you take how you're inspired by that and where that takes you and, and sort of how it expands your own sense of possibility rather than sort of maybe how early you heard it, which which at the time seemed to be the only thing that mattered. It's a fascinating again because I just feel like you think you know somebody and then you read this and there's just so much about you that's about constantly juxtaposing what you want versus what is there. I mean, I just always thought that you had been this kind of expansive thinker. And it's like, no, we're all <laughs> kids at some point. <laughs> no, definitely not. That's flattering to hear, because I think I think when I when I first met you, what, like uh almost twenty years ago, I was uh I was working really hard at pretending like I had all the answers or just sort of that I I was this confident expansive. You know, as many people do when they're beginning as critics or in graduate school. And so I think maybe what happened as I was writing this book was that I sort of had to take myself less seriously because I was writing a book about a lot of other people and turning myself and my friends into characters. And I realized that I was the butt of so many jokes of my own jokes and, and that it sort of forced me to just take myself a lot less seriously and sort of confess how alluring it once was to just be that expansive thinker and to sort of have all the answers, to have all the right takes. But um, in reality, I'm still just trying to figure it all out. My guest who's written two books on emotional evolution is Hua Xu. His <laughs> new book, full surprise when book, by the way, is Stay True, a memoir. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. He's still here. Hua Xu, staff writer for The New Yorker. His book is Stay True, a memoir. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash the treatment. When you meet your friend Ken, we were just talking in the first half about you dwelling on friendships in, in the book. And, and there's a section that, for me, really sort of describes who and what you are. When your time with Ken, you say, maybe this is what it meant to be known, this feeling of being exposed and transparent. One of the things that made me really uncomfortable when I first became friends with him, and a lot of the book is about how, you know, I was 19, like, if you listen to the wrong music, then you were like, you were dead to me, you know, like, or if, if you listen to the wrong music, you're just not someone I was particularly interested in, in getting to know. And it's a very silly way to be, but it's also very, uh, it's very natural. I think when you're that age to just sort of use taste as the only as the only metric. At least it was for me, and you know that was sort of the initial hangup. But then it was also just his capacity to kind of see through that facade or see see that what was inside was you know more doubt and insecurity rather than um, just sort of this a kind of mellow confidence <laughs> that I hope to project. Uh, he he was just kind of relentlessly curious about, you know, why I stood that way, why I wore the clothes I wore, what what it was about my weird music that I, I truly cherished. Um, and I think that was something that I found like weirdly unsettling, even though it's not like I didn't want to be noticed. 
it's interesting to find somebody who, as you were saying, is so present at that young an age that he, as you say in the book, gave you time to just sort of keep talking and talking until, as you put it, you ran out of straws to grasp. He was very good at being a person. You know, uh, he was mature in a way that I think very few um, college, first-year college students are. And again, I mean, I think one of the things about the book is is that you don't really need to reflect on a lot of people in your life as long as you can just still consult them and talk to them and continue kind of building new experiences, sharing new memories. It's sort of when those narratives get interrupted that we feel the need to construct narrative, right? Or to comb the past for for clues or symbols. So a lot of these qualities are things that I sort of implicitly understood and appreciated, but never needed to appreciate too much because I figured there'd always be more time. When you describe meeting him, it's almost like uh, reading an F. Scott Fitzgerald short story where all these things you ascribe to somebody because of their parents could be contradicted by whom what they are. That's sort of two versions of me at the same time, right? Because at the time, as a teenager, I was very caught up in the appearances, but looking back, I could also sort of appreciate what I wasn't seeing or, or what I couldn't possibly appreciate at that time. But um, yeah, there is a way in which dwelling on all of these conversations and those interactions back then, they didn't really take root for me until much later in life. I've got to wonder what it's like for you to finish the book and look at it as this document about this incredible loss. And we should say that, that Ken suffered a tragic death and it also, as you mentioned, the book was something that was in the air. And you mentioned James Byrd Jr. And because of what happened to him and Matthew Shepard, we now have the Hate Crimes Act. And that was a period that seemed to foment this. So I can't help but be struck by the fact that as you're looking for a group to be part of, that people are still being singled out for being outsiders. And the insularity, what you think is the comfort and the safety of that group can always be pecked at. You know, earlier you, you mentioned something about seeking out a larger world or sort of that consciousness that your world is much larger than than what you think it is. And I think in the immediate aftermath of that loss, I couldn't articulate that that's what I was looking for, but I did sort of develop, you know, a fascination with, as you know, like James Byrd, Matthew Shepard, just sort of these horrific things that were kind of adjacent in the world. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that I was just curious, I guess, about the nature of, I don't know, the world and just kind of how how terrible things could be at any given time and, and sort of trying to understand that larger continuum. And it isn't something I understood at all until writing the book. So I never actually felt the vulnerability um, or, or that sense of being exposed that, that I write about in the book until... I finished the book, but then I also thought this was just so specific to this moment, so specific to me that no one would possibly relate to it or, or understand what it is I was talking about. If you're a person of color in this country, you understand that there's this theoretical guardrail that always exists, that we can surround ourselves with things and have the comfort of these things being in front of us and what they, the associations that they bring. But we have to, as you're saying, remind ourselves, or because we will be reminded that there's a bigger world that can present certain threats. Yeah. And, and that really had a different meaning when Ken and I were just college students staying up at night, driving around, arguing about stuff. I mean, we were always 
talking about how much of the world we could enter into, basically. I mean, I guess in contemporary times, we would talk about it in terms of like representation or being seen. These weren't necessarily the terms we used, but, you know, he was always really charged up about, you know, seeing people who were like us, whether that was like fellow Asian Americans or just people who who felt a little outside or, or had a bit of alterity, seeing people like that in the culture, right, in the mainstream. Whereas I think I was always a bit more hesitant to even want that because it just seemed like such a an impossible thing. Um, and, and these were things that I didn't take that seriously at the time because it just seemed impossible that we would ever see people, quote unquote, like us in the culture. But um, sort of as I wrote the book, it was it was strange to reflect on how prescient sort of the, uh, the two sides of this this argument were. It's the treatment we're talking to Pulitzer Prize winner Washu. His book is Stay True, a memoir. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. What's so fascinating about that last section of the, of the book is just all the things that you think wouldn't bring you together, but would. You may be the only person in the history of print in the United States who connects Barry Goy's The Last Dragon through being learned to <laughs> by Buster Rhymes. So that was pretty <laughs> fun to, to encounter. Yeah, it was a pivotal moment um, in our friendship and I guess in my life as well, just staying up all night watching The Last Dragon. I mean, it was a movie that I think we both felt seen by, to use like a more uh, modern way of putting it, even though Bruce... Bruce Leroy, Leroy Green, he's not Asian American, but you know there was just something about the way he he moved through his community as this sort of alien. I mean, the the movie just it's funny because people read the book and read these kind of over the top interpretations we had of how this movie is a commentary on inauthenticity and sort of um, the place of Asian American. And then they'll watch it and they'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But uh, I, I maintain that this, this, this film was ahead of its time in, in so many ways. In much the same way that H.T. Zong was in, in my first book. Like these are, again, not a connection I think probably anyone has ever made. But, uh, you know, just people who are taking the raw materials of identity and just kind of breaking them, not in a mean-spirited way, but just sort of imagining something completely different. And I think that that's something that really appealed to me uh, as I watched it and, and when I watch it today. I just find it's that thing that I admire so much about what you do as a thinker, which is not only objects, but the power that pop culture confers upon people when they consume it. And the headiness that you get from finding this thing that connects us to others and that it's open to interpretation. And it's, it's kind of a, this almost like Melvillian whale that surfaces and then goes in the water throughout the book. I mean, you, you mentioned it in So is Seeing Baudrillard in, in reference in the very beginning of The Matrix. I mean, when we have these moments, it's truly a blissful thing to experience. I think it actually does go back to, you know, earlier we were talking about my parents and how they were really into music, but they weren't necessarily versed in all of like Bob Dylan's references they weren't reading Hawthorne while they were listening to, um, you know, Dylan. But, you know, it, it sort of remapped what they thought was possible. It gave them a sense of, um, I don't know if belonging, but it, it sort of gave them a sense of of place. And I think that that's not maybe what Dylan intended for them specifically, but it's something that I found really 
powerful as a kid once I sort of got into music finally. Uh, and it's something that I think I still chase. Maybe not like the interpretation of something that will be shared by other people, but just the possibility that all of these different worlds can exist in this one movie or song that, that's easily dismissible. It's it's interesting because you write about your dad and, and what he must have made of Dylan's strained rasp. And I just found myself thinking that something that you do as often as not in, in, in your work is, is writing up that moment where something happens in that culture that feels like home to you, a home you didn't know you had in the world until you hear it or you see it or you behold it. I think that's what culture represented to me when I was younger. Uh, you know, I was only child, spent a lot of time just with my records and comic books and television. So the idea that I could find a place seemed pretty abstract until I saw people doing that in music, like in a song, like people would meet in a song or in a movie. Yeah, it's, it's something that still powers a lot of why I write at all. You know, just that, that search for a home, the idea that you could you know, the book grew out of write, trying to write myself into the past. Like I really wanted to write myself into the day before. But in the end, I realized that it was about kind of writing towards towards a future, towards a, a place of, of belonging and a community that, that would not look like the communities we're offered today. The book is now being uh, published in paperback and you've had a year to live with it in, in the world. And this thing that means something very specific to you, even though it was something you had to wrestle with and it took you a while to get out. What's it like for you to talk to people about it now who have their own relationship with it? Maybe as cockeyed as mine, I don't know. But um, who have this take on this perspective that you had. It, that's got to be a fascinating thing for you to encounter as an observer. It's pretty weird, I have to say. I mean, I've written as a critic and a culture journalist for a while. And, you know, I've, I've been in countless situations where I, I'm like, you know, talking to an artist, I'm like, yeah, on track three, you're doing this. And then on track nine, you bring it back. And it was, and like, that's what this means. Right. And the person will just say like, nope, it just sounded good to me. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Just that. No, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> and so to be on the other side of that and to have something that's kind of freighted with meaning. There, there are a lot of things that I think are obvious on the page. There are certain things that I kept to myself, but then to be, I don't know, to just sort of hear people's takes on, on me as a character right? <laughs> or, or Ken, I mean, it's, it's truly bizarre, but I also find it so meaningful and moving just that it's no longer it's no longer mine. And it's scary in a way, but more often than not, people will read it and say like, Ken seems like a good guy. You seem like you're really annoying as a teenager. And I'm like, you know what? That's the correct interpretation. Like that's, that's what you should take. You should be, be like him and think about what it is you're seeing when you see people and, and what it is we want people to see about us and, and be less like, like me in the book. So yeah, it's very strange because it no longer feels like mine, but it's powerful that all these new people will admire this person they never got to meet. Well, my guess is 
Washu, his compelling book about his own life. I think the second is <laughs> Stay True <laughs> Memoir. Thanks so much for doing this one. Well, congratulations on the book. Matt Elvis, this was a blast. Thank you so much. New Yorker writer Hua Xu won the Pulitzer Prize for his 2022 memoir, Stay True. It's now in paperback. Style and story, over two decades worth at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I'm there and here, and it's the treatment. And I'm Elvis Mitchell. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Listen, there's nothing more important, I think, to talk about than the intersection of African-American experience and the politics of style. And the new film, Invisible Beauty, does just that. The film has a killer group of of on-camera talent, Zendaya, Whoopi Goldberg, Tyson Beckford, Pat Cleveland. The most important person to add to that list is its star and co-director, Beth Ann Hardison, and she's here with her co-director, Frederick Chang. Thank you guys for being here first and foremost, Beth Ann, as you talk about your father in the film, I wonder if you feel that you're bent towards activism and what you've done with your life what you and, and, and just being so forthright and honest comes from the way that he sort of educated you and taught you how to think about the world because clearly he, he gave you a, a really big worldview at a very young age. I don't seem to feel that he did in that way. I, I don't recognize it like that because he wasn't an activist. It seems like he was because of the things that he did. He was a Islamic uh, imam. Uh, he surely mentored people, but activist he wasn't. So I don't know if it's just I have it in me innately in my DNA in some way that what he was capable of, he didn't always exercise every single thing. But maybe that is true. I do fall from this tree. I'm noticing more and more that I don't put up with people as well, and he never did either. <laughs> so I got, I got that from him. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Frederick, let me turn to you, <laughs> uh, because the film is bookended with you asking her these questions. And I want to talk to you about starting the film that way and ending the film that way. Well, those were the conversations we we're having. I mean, that's the beauty of co-directing. And that's why I asked Beth Ann to co-direct. Is like, 
you know, we were always talking about how to do it, how to do it interestingly, how, you know, what would be an original way. So I was looking for something different and I knew Beth Ann could deliver something different because that's what she's been doing her whole life. That was my favorite space to be in, the conversation with Beth Ann, you know, on the phone. And eventually we turned it over to the editor and they loved it too. And so we decided to incorporate it into the film and give the audience a little bit of that intimacy. Well, you've done films on Halston and Dior and Deanna Freeland, and you worked with Matt Turner on the on the Valentino film. And these films, I mean, I, I think they're interesting is sort of like sort of compliments to Invisible Beauty because we get to see in those films just how insular the fashion world is and how sort of consumed with their own, what's only around them these people are. And this film is about breaking people out of those those walls of insularity and institutional racism. You're right. I mean, I, I'm always looking to go beyond fashion. And we talk a lot about that with Beth Ann early on. And we still do about the film being not a fashion film. It's about someone in the fashion world, but it's it goes way beyond that. And I think we're interested in the human journey. You know, woman's, it's a woman's story, really. When it comes down to institutional racism for the, the industry, the garment industry and the model industry and then and the fashion industry. I don't seem to think that. I don't think that. I just think that sometimes they get a little confused and they walk down the wrong street. And if it was really as institutional as you might say, I couldn't have been able to change it the way I did at, in that in that snap of a finger. Because once you present the word to them, the, the actions could be racist that makes everyone want to turn around and run for fire because they're just like, no, 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 I'm not a racist. No, of course, of course you're not. But you know what? The end of the results of it, that's what it, it is when you perform, no matter what your intention is, that's if you perform in such a manner. And so I don't think of the, the, the industry as systemically that way. I just think by cr- being creative, sometimes they follow the yellow brick road, get stuck in a rabbit hole. And that's what I think. I was the only reason why I thought I could change it. Well, sure. And, and and Frederick, to that point, you know, it's one of the things that if we look at those films you've worked on, we can see that these people live in bubbles. That they're surrounded by people who look like them, who think like them. So that that does create kind of an institution uh, because and, and the institution isn't reacting in an emotional way. It's just if you're surrounded by these white walls, pardon the expression, then that's what you're going to present. But interestingly enough, there was a time that belonged to them. We didn't care anything about that. That was not our interest. It didn't affect our world. Fashion has nothing to do with people who basically just buy clothes in a small store and still have great style. So to me, once you start to enter that world, you see just what you just said. It's insular. It's it's white. It's the norm. It's like going into someone's neighborhood and you want to belong and you have to adjust to when the Rome do as the Romans. And then you get mad because it's not what you don't look like you. Well, you went to their <laughs> Sorry to say this. <laughs> but Frederick, I want to turn back to you again. Just, I just thought those films, we're talking about insularity. And this film feels like, you know, again, to me, the bookend to those films, the compliment to sort of say that if you don't pierce that membrane, then the world of fashion and style will stay like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Beth Ann's story goes, you know, beyond the films that I've done before. I mean, it's, for me, it's really a pivotal film, you know, in the sense that the subject is really about change and how you create change. And as you said, I've explored many stories in films and I wasn't really aware of Beth Ann until I met her in 2014. You know, I think she's one of 
the great leaders, you know, in the industry that needs to be recognized beyond the industry, you know, in the in the main culture for like for really making fashion look very different. Bethany, I, mean, I want to ask you this question because it seems to me that it felt criminal that the the world of fashion ignored that explosive moment of Versailles in the early seventies. But not only that, but that world that you came out of, where it's Stephen Burroughs and it's Willie Smith. But that that moment with the, you've got black style entering the world of mainstream fashion, and I think in a really sort of significant and subtle way, transformed fashion, transformed the way models walked down the runway. I mean, didn't that feel to you like that was going to be the moment that would change things forever? Or did it feel that way to you at the time? <laughs> no, not at all. Well, none of us thought that way. Look, it was a tough ride. I mean, we were going in there just to to help to raise money to benefit this, this Marie Antoinette Theater that was in the Hall of Versailles. By the time it was decided that that was going to happen, the five designers from America to the five designers in, in France, it just changed so much by the media, the, the the French media deciding that it was becoming a battle and it was never going to be a battle. It was just a benefit. And then they started saying that we weren't, we had no right to even consider that they could, we could compare ourselves as the American designers to the French. So by the time we got there, it was like we were underdogs and we felt very bad. We got there and we didn't have, the, you know, the greatest um, conditions even to even do everything in. We left there curly victorious, feeling great about it because we actually won the battle that we didn't think we were going into, but then we knew we were. And then when we left, we just left. And no one thought about that again for years until about, what, eight years ago, 10 years ago, when the Metropolitan Museum discovered it because they had a diversity division. You know how I many when fashion never even talked about it because they didn't know about it. I'm not there to blame them, but I'm just to be clear that they didn't know anything about it. Now it's the biggest talk in town. I mean, for the last four or five years, Robin Givron decided to do her first book based on it. Two different filmmakers did documentaries on it. Now everyone talks about it like, you know, every like it was like a new sandwich at, you know, at McDonald's or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's a... It's, it's like the hottest thing. And, and they look at each other like, you didn't know about that? And I'm going, well, nobody knew about it. I mean, well, you must have thought, you know, you knew something. Well, all we knew is that we were happy that we won that. We had so many situations go wrong for us that worked for us in the end. And it was just wonderful. But Yves Saint Laurent, he said that Stephen Burroughs was the true American designer. And that just made, made my heart sing. Frederick, just to talk to you about that, because Halston was a part of that moment, too. And it must have been an, an extraordinary thing for you to see this this footage. Because um, to me, kid growing in Detroit and reading about that moment as it was happening, it, it felt to me like it was a, a shift that was going to change the world. I mean, at the same time, it's the same time that the R&B music is really blowing up, that black fashion, the way we wear colors, again, the way the black models walk down the runway, not just like passive sort of sylphs, but just sort of basically claiming territory. That felt to me, and in a lot of ways, those moments were absorbed into the fashion world without credit being given. Well, that's, that's great that you're saying all that, because because most people really either they, were, they weren't born yet or they were old enough, but they, that wasn't something to be in their atmosphere because fashion is not something that's general. Well, it was in Women's Women's Wear Daily and everything, but I don't know that it was really mainstream like that. But you're right that, you know, a lot of people say that it changed the way American fashion was perceived, you know, on the global stage. I mean, 
Robin Givan, who wrote her book, she was really strong on that. And, you know, it put them on the map in a way that they weren't before. And that was thanks to the, the 10 black models who really brought it on. As did the white models and also the dancers. Right. And, you know, and after that, it sort of, uh, it, it did change um, a lot of things in Europe, you know. I think uh, a lot of uh, models of color started working in Europe. I'm from France, so I don't want to diss France too much, but <laughs> they did. They were, talk about being insular, you know, they're very insular culture. And then America comes and they show something very different and full of energy and full of life. And, and I think it affected, you know, Europe quite, quite a lot. It's the treatment. We're talking about the film Invisible Beauty with its directors, Beth Ann Harrison and Frederick Chang. Beth Ann is the star of the film. She's the center of the film. There's something you say in the movie, Beth Ann, which I think really sort of encapsulate who you were on the runway and also who you are to this very day. Uh, you became like a samurai. The way you moved, but also there's that, that kind of attitude of take no prisoners. And what fashion had been to that point was kind of coquettish with the, the clothes kind of floating around the models almost. You were sort of saying, this is who I am. I'm here to be seen. There is something, I think, not combative, but defiant about the way you were when you moved. That's true. The word defiant is exactly right. I think that was what it was for me. It was really very more important to find a character. I'm an actor since the time I came onto Earth, I think. And I think the appreciation of uh, Toshiro Mifuni was something the Japanese actor who played in all of the films that were of that region of time, Seven, Summarize, all that stuff. And I just loved the character, you know? He was a gentle soul, but he was very efficient and proficient in the fact of how he handled himself in the moment of war or battle. I did take that on because at one point, you have to look at the audience, you have to look at someone. And I, I always felt as a model that was very important too. And I did give that sense of defiance because it was something to sort of like push people back. It's funny. It's not something in your head, but I, I used it. Beth Ann, as we're talking about this, though, I mean, it's, it's obvious that when you had your agency, which was so diverse and had so many models of, of different ethnicities, uh, mixed ethnicities, who were incredibly successful and changing the world of fashion, did it not seem like to you that once you'd started that that rock rolling downhill and it becomes a boulder, that that change would keep in motion. My agency was a white agency, of course, and it had Black and Asian Latin kids in it. But I watched as um, people start seeing my agency because my agency was unusual. It was a boutique, it was small. I watched bigger agencies start to, you know, implement having a Black girl in and a Black boy. If I, they heard that I was trying to get this one girl from London, for instance, they would try and get the girl. So I think in a way, it influenced naturally. They were also not opposed at that point to, to models of color because at that point, Regis Badness had come along and he was coming from France to start Elle magazine, American Elle here. And he just loved the black girl, the black woman. He would put black girls on the covers in the magazines, inside editorials. And that changed the game. So in the 80s, when I started my agency, the black fashion model was existing. She, you were seeing her. Now, it wasn't just on the runway. You were seeing her in pages. You were seeing her places. That really changed the game. So I was happening. He came along. He even came to my office when he, when he was coming to look for offices. And he just helped change the game for all of us. That's why I could start the Black Girls Coalition and things like that, because there were so many girls out there of color working, but not working like I used to have to do, like just a runway or something. They were working 
in the editorials doing, you know, ads, they were coming along. So, yeah, it changed the game because of time. It wasn't necessarily what I did. I was just floating on my own boat, going down my own piece of water. I, I was just doing me. <laughs> Being you, you still notice what wasn't there. You definitely do. You notice what's not there. I mean, Steve and myself one time, very well-known fashion photographer. He called me one time. He said, you know, you know, I asked for some Asian models. Do you know, and all the agencies, you're the only one who has an Asian model? I said, you're kidding me. He said, I'm telling you, Beth Ann, that's crazy to me. Well, it wasn't crazy, but I get it. For him, it was crazy because it shouldn't be like that. But at that time, I, I so happened to have had, I had two. <laughs> so, yes, I guess in some way you're right. I just was looking at things differently. I never go down the yellow brick road like everybody else follows. It. I just believe, you know, I wasn't going to let it be like I say oftentimes. I wasn't going to let it be like a Woody Allen movie. You're living right in New York and you never see anybody of color on the, on the streets. That, that. I used to say, Woody, come on. <laughs> you, you, you're shooting in the garment industry. The guy with the roller, he, he's Latino or something. He's black or something. He's definitely not Caucasian. Come on, Woody. So that would be my uh, my play. You know, I would always try to just be what would I want the world to look like. And I knew it had to use it, had to have a strong hand with the, the Caucasian girl, boy and girl because that's my competition. I had to come with the same product. But I knew while I had that product, I would just include, you know, the black, the Latino. And the Asian. What was it like for you to see the film and, and to see what your life had been and then see all these different currents? Well, as I always say, this it's a story told well. Uh, when I saw it, the four hours he let me see, he got it down from seven hours that he loved, and he had to get it down to four hours so he could at least present, and then they had to start chipping away. I was very, very, very impressed with it because as I helped him to make the, the film, the jury was sort of out that I didn't have a story. I don't know what we're much to do about nothing, pretty much. Uh, but of course, seeing it really, really made me a believer. I wrote back to him. I said, now you've made me a believer. And I guess that was the greatest thing he could ever hear. But I really then could sort of see and seeing that, you know, even the plus about Tyson and us. I mean, just everything was just, it was a great story told. And, I, and I'm very, very happy with it. Well, I can't thank you both enough for being here. My guess, maybe one of them will finish writing her book one day. Beth Ann Hardison and Frederick Chang, they're the co-directors of the film Invisible Beauty, which is about Beth Ann Hardison's life. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Elvis. Thank you. Beth Ann Hardison is the subject of the documentary Invisible Beauty, and she co-directed along with Frederick Chang. The Treat, courtesy of Oscar-nominated screenwriter-turned-director Kemp Powers, is a work of fiction that won the National Book Award. Previous treats can be heard at kcrw.com slash the treat.
It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Director Kemp Powers took us across the Spider-Verse this last summer, and for The Treat, he talks about a work that took him on a much different journey. Hi, I'm Kemp Powers, and this is The Treat. Something that had a tremendous impact on me was the book Middle Passage by Charles Johnson. I read that book for the first time when I was about 19 years old, and it was just this kind of epic storytelling. Basically, it's about this guy, Rutherford Calhoun. He's a, he's a Creole, a biracial Creole in New Orleans. He's about to have to marry a woman he doesn't want to marry. So to escape this marriage, he takes a job on basically a slave ship that's going to Africa to pick up a bunch of slaves and, and bring them back to America. And Rutherford, because he's Creole, really tries to like get in with the white captain. But then after they pick up these slaves and a crate filled with what we think might be the slave's deity, the slaves manage to revolt and take over the ship. And Rutherford, who's part black and part white, kind of goes back and forth, um, changing allegiances between the crew and the, um, the, the slaves. It's not very long. I think it got a bunch of book awards that year, but I read that book for the first time when I was 19 and it just really, it took over like my imagination. I was like, this is one of the first times in a long time that I've read a real piece of like, I, I saw the epic story in my head and it featured characters I could relate to that looked like me in locations that I loved. I'm a huge fan of, of New Orleans. And, and it was just a really, really impactful book to me. In plain English? I was a petty thief. How I fell into this life of living off others, of being a social parasite, is a long, sordid story best shortened for those who, like the Greeks, prefer to keep their violence off stage. And there were also some, like, very small details in it that I just remembered. Again, when I first read it, I was making comic books. So the fact that the captain, who was so paranoid, he had a magnet in the trigger of his gun, and he wore a ring so that he was the only person who could fire his gun. It was like an, a pirate-style version of having, like, you know, a fingerprint, you know, scanner so that only you could use your own weapon. There were lots of little, like, super-duper cool details like that. In shimmering light so soft and opalescent that sunlight could not fully pierce the fine, erotic mist. It, it made me realize that when you're writing fiction to like not gloss over fine fine detail and and that story you know it, it had so many little little details like that 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 really i kind of took notes i reread it every like five or six years or so just because it's such a quick read you know so i, I just I, I love that book so much The Treat, from writer-director Kemp Powers, is Charles R. Johnson's award-winning novel, Middle Passage. Screenwriter Rodney Barnes' Treat was a trippy, groundbreaking 70s horror series. It too can be heard at kcrw.com slash the treat. The Treat, voyages into the psyches of some of the most creative forces in pop culture on the touchstones of inspiration in their lives. Our show, produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney, mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Help this week, and most actually, from Anna Bus and Laura Kandarajan. 
to Better Days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.